This is why we don't record at night. <laughs> we uh, both are sitting here looking kind of exhausted. I was telling Amanda that I look a little bit like Mad Madam Mim right now from Sword in the Stone. Yes, and I'm pouring uh, tea into an exceedingly fancy uh, saucer uh, cup because it's one of those like two in ones where it's like the teacup and the teapot. Uh, this was a gift. Shout out to Ricky. Uh, you know how people are like, oh, you know, guys don't get it. They do when you tell them exactly what you want. This was on my wish list. And Ricky was like, yeah, this for her. I'm drinking tea out of my stress depressed encrypted obsessed cup. Okay, mood. Big mood. I, uh, I feel like we should get sponsored by Look Human at this point. Yeah, we've given them enough money. Sponsor us. But they do NFTs. I learned that. Oh. Yeah. I'm not an NFT person. People not... always try to do that with Fangirl Nation. They're always like, hey, you should do an NFT. I'm like, why? The only NFT I'm into are nice fucking tits. There you go. <laughs> Uh, we are, uh, why are we having tea in the middle of the night on Wednesday? So today we are discussing Rebecca by Daphne de Moyer, or however yes. you want to pronounce it. Yes. Uh, we realized after Tori went on vacation and didn't tell me that this would be the only way we'd still get an episode out that satisfies Women's History Month and is still Checks Notes March. Yeah, I kind of forgot that the first was Saturday, so. It was very funny. It was a very funny message that it's like, hey, so we're going to have to like record this week. And Tori just being like, what is time? What is time? I have a, a cat behind me in my chair. Nemo has decided that it is safe to steal my chair at this point. Mood and relatable. So yeah, we're uh, we're reading Rebecca. We're wrapping up uh, the month. This is episode 99. I know, it's creepy. How, how have we done this for so long? Um, <laughs> stubbornness, spite. Yeah. Alcohol? Yeah. Okay. Fair. Fair. Valid. Fair. Valid. Um, I'm drinking chamomile tea because the other tea I like has caffeine in it. And if I have caffeine, I won't sleep. I'm drinking black pomegranate tea. It is caffeinated. Oh, to not have sleep disturbances. Oh, I have chronic insomnia, so it doesn't really matter if I drink it or don't, so. Well, I tried. I'd like the record to state that at 2.50, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> Tori, what is the uh, creative title we have for this episode? Because I fucked off and went to Vegas one week when we were supposed to record. It's, yes. I dreamed I went to Mandalay Bay last night. <laughs> So for yep. those of you who haven't read Rebecca yet, um, the opening line is, I dreamed last night I went again to Mandalay. And it is one of the most iconic lines in English literature. So. I feel like the most iconic line in English literature is uh, that one part of a Shakespeare play that says exit pursued by a bear. Oh, yes. The directions. Yeah, that's the most iconic line to me. If we're including uh, all European nations, my favorite is when Gregor Samsa woke from unsettling dreams. Because the metamorphosis yep. is just how I feel on a daily basis. It's Kafka-esque. 
Wow. <laughs> Low hanging fruit. Low hanging fruit. Because I, I, I could, I feel like I've heard that before, where someone describes Kafka as Kafka esque, and it's just like, yeah, you are. You're not technically wrong. They call the prince okay. Machiavellian. <laughs> yeah. Oh god. This book by Orwell is very Orwellian. <laughs> so uh we are drinking tea because good lord, there is tea at every fucking moment of this book. Oh yeah, it's pretty perpetual. It's like you're British, what do we do? We have tea. So I figured we should have tea. Also, it means that I don't have to worry about drinking because I have chronic insomnia, but I take medicine for it, and alcohol plus trazodone equals heavy sleep. Which can be problematic. Yeah. So chamomile it is. My least favorite tea. Um, okay. Let's short story long because it's nighttime and both of us have lives. <laughs> okay. So the start of the book, Rebecca flashbacks to the life of, to her, oh, sorry, Rebecca, pardon, mm -hmm. is not the name of the narrator. Rebecca no. starts with a flashback as in yes. Our nameless heroine is living in Europe with her husband, Maxim de Winter. They're yes. traveling from hotel to hotel after their estate, Manderley, was destroyed by a massive fire. Mm -hmm. So we go back to the days when they first met each other um, in Monte Carlo. Our unnamed heroine is a companion to a wealthy American woman named Mrs. Van Hopper. Mm -hmm. As always with most English literature, they talk about how unclassy Mrs. Van Hopper is and how, mm -hmm. you know, she tries to insert herself into everything and is always talking smack and, you know, knows everybody's drama. Maxim is also yeah. staying at the hotel. He does not like other people's drama and wants to be left alone. So Dude. when Mrs. Van Hopper ends up inserting herself into his day, our unnamed narrator gets drug along with and uh, mm -hmm. they end up meeting, she and, and Maxim. Um, mm -hmm. He and she spend the afternoons together when Mrs. Van Hopper gets the flu. And after only a few weeks when she tells him, well, Mrs. Van Hopper's going back to New York, so I have to go too because I'm her paid companion, he proposes mm -hmm. to her. It's super okay. unromantic. Um, it feels more like a business proposition. She mm -hmm. accepts. They marry quickly. This is usually a bad idea. She is very young. He is 42. They go back yeah. to his ancestral estate, Manderley, which evidently she bought a postcard of when she was a kid and didn't realize. Yeah. Like, if there's like a 20 year age gap here. Like, <laughs> so the narrator hasn't not been raised with money. So coming to Manderley is a big change. Um, mm -hmm. Even worse, everyone in the house is well aware of Maxim's first wife, who's dead, Rebecca, a.k.a. the first Mrs. De Winter. So a lot mm -hmm. of people refer to her as Rebecca, just first name only, or Mrs. De Winter if they're trying to be, or they'll, they'll specify the first Mrs. De Winter did this. Yes. Um, it's basically like, even though she's not there, her ghost seems to haunt the house. Rebecca's housekeeper is creepy as fuck. And super mm -hmm. devoted to her former employer and her memory. Like, mm -hmm. not washing the nightgown that Rebecca wore the night before she disappeared. Or mm -hmm. leaving out her hairbrushes in an unused room on the table like she's coming back. Keeping everything nice and orderly for somebody who is dead. Anyway. Yeah. 
this is Mrs. Danvers. Mrs. Danvers does everything she can to make the new Mrs. De Winter feel really uncomfortable. Um, Frank Crawley, the house overseer, yes. and Maxim's sister's sister, Beatrice, both try to encourage the narrator. They're like, you're great. You're fine. You're actually exactly what Maxim needs. Please stop uh, mm -hmm. beating yourself up. Mm -hmm. But the narrator's like, I can't compare to Rebecca. I can't compare to this image. What if Maxim loves her, still is still in love with her? Um, she thinks she's less beautiful, less talented, less brilliant, less capable of running a manor. And she convinces herself that Maxim is still in love with Rebecca. So mm -hmm. when they have company over, which Maxim's not really a big fan of, but he feels like he has to when he's encouraging his wife to be more social because she doesn't really like people. Mm -hmm. um, she definitely has some sort of social anxiety. Same. A bunch of people con her basically into holding the annual costume ball. Now, this was a mm -hmm. big deal when Rebecca was alive. Since Rebecca has died, Maxim is, hasn't really felt the need to host it anymore. And so mm -hmm. the heroine decides that this is going to be the point where she proves to everyone that she's worthy of living in Manderley. And mm -hmm. she throws all of her time and effort into preparing for this ball and starts to feel amazing. She's like, look, I'm doing it. I'm great. I'm falling into this role. I'm going to be a great wife, even though I was born poor. Mrs. Danvers offers to help with a costume for the heroine. Now, this is always a bad idea because she seems real happy to help, even though she's been kind of a psycho bitch this whole time. Mm -hmm. The ball ends in disaster as we discovered that the dress the new Mrs. DeWinter is wearing is the one Rebecca wore at the very last ball that was held. Maxim is horrified, and our girl becomes convinced that Maxim is never going to love her. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Danvers almost convinces the narrator to kill herself. She changes her mind when she sees rockets go off over the cove, saying that a ship has run aground. When divers swim out to the grounded ship, they find that it's Rebecca's ship, and her dead body is in the hold, which is weird because everyone is like, oh, he found her body, or sorry, they found her body and Maxim, you know, identified her corpse and all this stuff. So it's already like, oh God, what's going on? Mm -hmm. Maxim comes clean, tells the narrator that Rebecca was wicked, cruel, and evil. She had secret multiple affairs. She even had an affair with her cousin, Jack Favel. On the night of Rebecca's death, Maxim demanded a divorce. She refused and told him she was pregnant with Jack's child. He grabbed a gun and shot her and then sailed the boat out into the harbor and sank with the body and sank with the body inside. Cool. 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 Totally fine. Your new husband's a murderer. Totally fine. Yeah. Cool. 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 For some reason, all of this restores the heroine's image. And she's like, I'm better than Rebecca. I'm going to take <laughs> this marriage to the next level. Like, fuck dude are you and jane aaron cahoots like what the hell so yeah they're besties it's discovered that there are holes drilled in the bottom of the boat the coroner is calling the death suicide jack fable comes forward and calls it murder and accuses maxim of the crime which is fair because he did shoot her but whatever the local magistrate does some investigation finds out the day of the of her death rebecca went to london to see mm -hmm. dr baker an obstetrician the group Gasp. goes up to london to speak with dr baker and the heroine is terrified that everyone's going to think, oh, God, what do I do? <laughs> Rebecca was pregnant. It's going to be a motive for murder. Instead, we get a fucking plot twist. 
Rebecca <clears throat> was dying of ovarian cancer and she was infertile. She yes. lied to Maxim about the pregnancy. The terminal illness thing gives a motive for supposed suicide. So Maxim gets off scot-free. Yes. He and the narrator drive back to Manderley, but when they get there, Mrs. Danvers is gone and she has set the house up in flames. And then they start traveling from hotel to hotel, small hotels, not fancy ones, because they're mm -hmm. trying to stay under the radar. Cool. Uh, cool, cool, cool. Uh, Want to hear something weird? The publisher, sure. when the book came out, uh, marketed uh, it, this book as a romance. I mean, are they meaning like capital R romance where it's actually like horrifying? Then yes. Uh, they meant it more like a love story. But no. even Daphne was like, nah, why would you market it like that? Yeah, no, that's, you know, we're, we're approaching episode 100 because we're old. And, and, you know, I feel like it kind of reminds me of the conversation that we had with Romeo and Juliet, where it's like, this is not a love story. This is a cautionary tale. Exactly. Um, Fallout Boy's newest song. <laughs> and this is actually meant to be a cautionary tale. Yeah, like, there's a lot in here that... um. I don't know. I guess because I grew up in a certain segment of Southern society that like a lot of this just kind of like rolled off of me because it's like, oh, yeah, I've heard of stories like this. That one bitch. <laughs> that one guy with like the 15 wives. That one. Yeah, it feels a lot like Bluebeard. Mm -hmm. So we have some themes. Believe it or not, I put some themes in. So did you. I'm um, so proud of us. Look at us. Podcasting. Look at us. You think we'd ever be this far? Not me. <laughs> I had to um I had to answer a question for an interview it was um where do you see yourself in five years? And I really thought we had retired that question with the with the pandemic. And I was just like, alive? I, I don't I know. Uh, here? I, what do you mean? You're like, I'm a millennial. We're technically planning for retirement, but we don't know if we're gonna get there. I have a hard time deciding what to have for lunch. That's why I do the ADHD autistic thing where I just stock up on foods that I know I'll eat. Safe foods. Otherwise, I will not eat. I'll get overwhelmed by choice and then just starve. So one of our main themes, in, well, not main things, but one of our themes in this is the narrator being nameless. Yes. And there's a couple debates about this. Right. Um, some see this as Daphne du Maurier um, doing a self-insert mm -hmm. because there's a lot of things that line up. Yeah, line up and kind mm -hmm. of reflect her father, like in her father's behaviors. We'll get into that a little bit. And also Neat. a little bit of her husband. Um, but also with the narrator being nameless, mm -hmm. the reader can see themselves closer to her position. It's right, kind of like, sorry, go ahead. Like if anything, the narrator being nameless made it, I don't necessarily, at least like for me, not easier to self-insert because you know, I'm African-American. So I don't really self-insert into white people drama very easily, but like it at least made it easier to like, Again, like I've heard stories like this of, you know, oh, well, and the first wife did all this cool stuff. And now there's the second wife and everyone fucking hates her. And we don't know why. Uh, it also makes it 
easier for us to kind of see her as for forgettable, even though she's the one telling the story. Right. Because while the book is about her uncovering things, in the end, it is about Rebecca. Mm -hmm. um, it's about Rebecca, even in death, causing all sorts of chaos and drama mm -hmm. and um, being seen as a bad wife. Right. And... And being seen as a bad wife for so much that has nothing to do with her. Because it'd be one thing if she was really a bad wife. Because bad wives exist. But really put in a situation that is unwinnable for anyone. Where, you know, you are competing against the dead. Um, I had a little bit of that growing up. I mean, my mom also had just like horrible taste in men post my dad dying. But that was also a huge factor, not just that my mom was dating horrible men, but any guy that was even halfway decent had some big ass shoes to fill. I wasn't going to accept just anyone. And shocker, I didn't. A lot of the men in my family tried really, really hard to step up. There was a great like race to be like Amanda's new father figure. And none of them won. <laughs> Because when you are trying to fit into the shoes of someone else, it's almost impossible. You're never going to do it right. And especially when there are so many people determined to maintain the artifice of that person. Um, yeah, this was, this was a weird one. It wasn't bad, but it was definitely kind of weird. Also, I need to gauge on what level of caucasity you're at. So, you know those weird Mormon dirty sodas where they put, like, creamer and stuff in the cola? Which is so weird. Okay, you think that's weird? Yeah. Okay, it's okay. It's really I just, gross. Okay, I, I don't, just had to... I don't get it. I, I just needed to confirm, because they're opening up a bunch of them in San Antonio, and I don't understand them. They scare me frequently. Frequently? Uh, frankly. Uh, the fact that Pepsi milk is a thing... I, I just like remember it. we were driving through Utah and my dad wanted a beer. And so he had to join a club at the restaurant to be able to have a beer. And then my sister him. and I sat outside while he drank a beer. I love that less for him. <laughs> I was like, I love that for him. Iconic. Never mind. It's... <laughs> Never mind. It's not cute anymore. <laughs> uh... We were old enough. I was like almost 20. It was fun. Oh, okay. I I, mean, I don't. I still don't feel great, but you, you know, you know what I mean. It's it's that unique thing of like when you're a kid with trauma and you tell a story, and it's like, oh, that's not funny to everyone. Okay, cool. One of my friends jokes that her life story. She's now got it into a tight fifteen. <laughs> you know, I still run about a solid. Okay, depending on how much I'm leaving out. I can do like a solid 21. If I'm not leaving anything out, I encourage you to take your shoes off, put on some stretchy pants. I'll make snacks. There's charts. I can just see you with like the poster board that you get when you're a, a kid in, you're in school. school. You yeah, the little, yeah. The little trifolds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about one of our favorite things, which are, um, unfair power dynamics yes so one of the reasons that 
this book works so well. And this is something mm -hmm. the writer was trying to portray, which she talked about, mm -hmm. is how different these two um, are, Maxim and our narrator. Our narrator is like basically... She has no idea what she's going to be doing the next day. She has, is living entirely under other people's power because they're the ones that pay her bills and allow her to eat and sleep mm -hmm. and have a place to be. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Maxim can do whatever the fuck he wants. If he decides right. that he wants to drive down the coast, he drives down the coast and he mm -hmm. takes her with him. He doesn't understand when she's uncomfortable about things because mm -hmm. she, she many, many times when they're first getting to know each other is like, you know, you don't have to be so nice to me. I really appreciate you doing this and, and you know, taking time out of your schedule to hang out with somebody who's like 19 or 20. Like, mm -hmm. thanks for letting me come with you so I can sketch. Thank you for, you know, eating with me and just making me mm -hmm. not feel so alone. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Meanwhile, he's like, what are you talking about? This is seduction. <laughs> like, <laughs> when um, in the proposal scene, they're literally sitting at a table and mm -hmm. she has told him as she's she's run up to his room in the hotel, which is at that point in time was extremely scandalous for a woman mm -hmm. to be by herself in a man's room, mm -hmm. especially when he's getting ready. And he's she's like, I have to go to the ticket office and exchange the tickets. We're leaving today. Mm -hmm. You know, my my patron where she wants us to leave earlier. And he's just kind of doing whatever he wants. Give mm -hmm. me five minutes. Goes and gets ready. Slowly walks down the stairs with her. He's like, let's go eat breakfast. She's like, you don't understand. I have to go exchange tickets. Mm -hmm. This is what I get paid for. I have to go handle all the travel issues. And he's like, no, 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 no. You're going to sit with me and you're going to like, what are you talking about? You know, you don't have to do this. And then eventually he just presents to her. He's like, well, you can come back with me to Manderley. Yeah. And she's like, like a job like really confused and he's like no like my wife and just that whole thing where he suddenly goes into oh i bet you kind of wanted like a moonlight proposal and all this stuff and she's just kind of sitting there going what the fuck just happened but she doesn't right. see a way out because he holds all yeah. the cards in this she doesn't want to go back to new york she doesn't want to have to deal with you know being friends with Mrs. Van Hopper's daughter and like that she does can't stand and mm -hmm. you know dating guys who fill her up or feel her up on the dance floor like it's um she sees Maxim as her only way out right you know Which it's interesting <laughs> to think about because you know we have these issues of unfair power dynamics and we still have them a lot today um I've been kind of ruminating on this uh, because I normally love celebrating Women's History Month, but then, you know, on top of all the national tragedies that keep happening, um, a lot of Women's History Month stuff really has reverted back to, like, that lean-in white girl feminism, mm -hmm. and it's just so not applicable to Black people. And we had done great for a little while of being really intersectional. I don't exactly know what caused the shift outside of the just standard decline of America. Um, but just how much of it just doesn't apply 
to being African-American, you know, that we're going back to that whole, like, you know, if you have an idea, you should say it. Don't be afraid to be assertive. And it's like, I literally have to be afraid to be assertive. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, that's, <laughs> no, we're, we can't do that. We're not allowed to do that. Um, and then also another funny, interesting thing is um, the ascribing of agency when it didn't exist. So I saw an ad for Women's History Month that was at Henrietta Lacks. Um, for those of you who do not know who Henrietta Lacks is, you should. Uh, she was a, a Black woman who uh, was dying of cancer. Doctors took a sample from her cancer cells and uh, proceeded to start running tests on them. And it turns out that Henrietta Lacks had the only cells in scientific history that are immortal. Despite the cancer, despite everything, they kept reproducing, they kept going, and they didn't die off. There are still H-E-L-A or HeLa cells decades on after Henrietta Lacks died. Well, this ad was saying how much of a pioneer she was. And the thing is, is that she wasn't. She was just a sick Black woman. And to be honest, her family wouldn't have known about this horrible misuse of her body if it wasn't for the fact that they saw some of these papers being published and referencing Gila, not even her name. So no, she wasn't this grand, you know, tits out, pitchfork pioneer for women's autonomy in medicine. She was a sick woman who died. Um, so I have these un, you know, equal power uh, dynamics very much at the forefront of my mind because we sure do live in a society. And yeah, it was interesting to kind of hear so much of this work be, you know, this just poor woman who's dragged along and honestly just can't really tell the forest from the trees. What's crazy, too, is we get references over and over and over again about how accomplished Rebecca was, mm -hmm. about how, you know, she came from a wealthy family, of how mm -hmm. she knew how to play the game. Mm -hmm. And a lot of her attributes are made to out to be bad things. Yes. Uh, Maxim talks about, you know, her basically not respecting him and just mm -hmm. tries to make her out to be a villain. Yeah. And a lot of the plot of this book relies on her being the villain. It mm -hmm. relies on her keeping secrets. Mm -hmm. Now keep in mind when she is shot, she's just had one of the worst days of her life. Right. She just got back from London found out that she's dying of cancer. Mm -hmm. So all of these things that she's done in her life are, you know, pretty much pointless to her mm -hmm. at least at the moment. Mm -hmm. And she comes back to Maxim talking to her about like, oh, I know you've been having an affair. I know you've been doing this. And it's like, he's trying to exert this power over her. And I'm not saying Rebecca is a saint. Of course not. That's not any of the, the point here. But the mm -hmm. point is, he is uncomfortable when there is a woman on his level. Even his sister, who is on the same level, 
is described as they don't really communicate except through letters when they have to or when right. she comes for a visit. Like right. they're not close. Um, right. And, you know, that's something that we still see frequently. You know, Tori has listened to me lament many a time about, you know, that delicate dance of not emasculating a boss. Mm -hmm. And sometimes having to because they're terrible. <laughs> and sometimes having no choice but to because they're trash and they deserve it. Um, so, yeah, it was an, it was an interestingly uh, prescient read considering all of the everything that is going on right now. Also, uh, dear listeners, if you have a spare moment, I'd like to talk to you about a little thing called uh, the Restrict Act. So the TikTok ban is not a TikTok ban. It's a ban on social media and an overreaching desire to control how free speech is done just across the board. So they started making it sound like it's a TikTok ban. It even take away your precious VPNs. Call your senators. Call your congresspeople. Let them know that uh, overarching, you know, attacks to the fucking constitution are not great. Also, if you are like us, where your local legislator has decided that the greatest threat to uh, modern society or trans people and drag queens, um, go ahead and just stay on the line. There are some lovely programs that will allow you to send automatic emails to your uh, people in power, but we are not going to get anywhere by staying in our houses angry. Yeah. Because, so oh boy. If you're wondering, the UN has us classified as a flawed democracy. I mean, we always have been. Like, I'm not going to, I don't say that to, like, make it sound like it just, you know, it's always been bad. But we always have had these problems. Um, it just got a lot worse. So, you know, for all of the time that you could spend ruminating in your home upset, which is valid. I've spent plenty of time ruminating upset. Uh, it's also time to do shit. Um, I got into a lovely conversation with someone who said we need a French Revolution, only to have to remind them that the French Revolution didn't achieve jack shit. They traded a bourbon for a Bonaparte. And then they were mad at him for a very long time. They were mad at him. They they killed a king, which, okay, fair. They killed the king's wife, who didn't do anything, and then they promptly murdered Robespierre. Just promptly. And then the French turned it into a party. Guillotine parties were very in vogue, where women would wear their hair short, and all attendees would wear a red ribbon around their neck to symbolize the blood. Gross. Okay, but a, a guillotine party is kind of iconic. I would host one. I know. I believe you would. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know. A, guillot a guillotine party is kind of iconic. <laughs> so I'm going to tie this one into the unfair power dynamic. Maxim mm -hmm. is not a romantic figure. And we've talked a little bit about this at the start of the episode. We did. Um, her publisher tried to make it seem like more of a romance than it was. And if mm -hmm. you watch Hitchcock's version of Rebecca. They changed mm -hmm. the ending to make it a little more romantic. I mm -hmm. will say Netflix did a really good job with their version and not just because they cast Army Hammer and then that turned out to be prescient. I was about um, to say, wait a minute. 
It's like, so, wait a moment. <laughs> that was one of the weird shocks is that movie came out in 2020, just as all of these accusations were coming forward. Accusations that turned out to be very grounded in reality. Absolutely. Women that he had talked about cannibalism on, um, about how he would do these things where he would talk about how he was going to go, like, go to Home Depot and get rope and he would ask them this they want to do shibari which don't use Home Depot rope bro unless you get like some Please. really quality rope like Please don't use that don't. weird shit but don't watch um rope. watch House of Hammer if you get a chance that documentary is bonkers mm -hmm. um but it's this this thing is it ended up hammering home accidentally no pun intended that no bullshit is not a good guy um yes. And it's anytime our narrator talks about being uncomfortable, anytime she talks about being scared, anytime she talks about, do we really have to do this? He's mm -hmm. very just, he shrugs it off. He completely ignores her fears, completely mm -hmm. ignores her concerns. If it's not mm -hmm. about him, he doesn't give a fuck. Mm -hmm. Well, and I... You know, I'll I'll go back to uh, very early episodes where I'm a very, very soft Tom Buchanan defender. I'll go ahead and go to bat for Maxim just ever so slightly. A lot of that, I think, is just toxic masculinity. Like, I don't really see him as, like, this horrible supervillain. I see him as a rich white guy who, I mean, realistically is everyone's supervillain. But, like, I don't see him as, like, you know, this mustache-twirling, you know, cape-fling. He's not Radigan. He's just a douchebag. He feels very Mr. Rochester. And... Yeah, um, he's just a dick. The writer was also... Had been reading Bronte since she was a kid. So, that's... That feels very much... Yeah. Very like, real. <laughs> Like I, like I had that I had that problem a little bit reading it because I feel like I feel like the meta narrative wants you to think, you know, he's this mustache twirling villain, but like he's just he's just a guy. He's a shitty guy, but he's just a guy. Hit him with your car. He's a fucking murderer. Well, I mean, yeah. I'm not defending I know. That. We watch <laughs> Hannibal, I know. We we loved our murder husbands, but right, like, I'm, I'm not I'm not defending the murder, Victoria. I'm not, that's not what I'm doing here. The murder is still murder. So something that echoes through this book and it feels a little bit like self-hatred and that makes sense when you find out more about her history. Mm -hmm. uh, lesbianism is treated as a severe mental illness. We have yeah. Mrs. Danvers who is very clearly in love with Rebecca and the memory of Rebecca just that shit crazy obsessed mm -hmm. like we were talking about keeping things out and ready for her even though she's dead she ain't coming back lighting manderly on fire all of this this crazy stuff See, like and that's i get i get that symbol but like i just radically didn't read it that way maybe i would just hate reading this i don't know she's just a crazy broad Crazy broads exist. Like, like, I just, <laughs> I guess because, like, I'm very inoculated against reads like that because of how toxic they are to actual queer people. I have a pretty high shield for interpretations like that. Um, but, like, she's just a crazy lady. 
She's just a crazy lady. My grandmother kept flowers from every funeral she attended until she had this weird little death garden. And then one day she looked at a rose that she gotten from her mother's funeral and said, I can see my mother's face in the roses. And we took the roses down. <laughs> like she just, you're just a crazy, you're just a crazy old lady. Crazy old ladies exist. What fascinates me about Mrs. Danvers is how many times she fucking oversteps over and over and over and over. And the narrator just keeps going, ha, okay, ha, okay. Because she has no backbone at the time. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like it reminds me so much of my early 20s. It really Fair. does. Where you're like, okay, this is the mold I'm supposed to be in. How do I... Mm -hmm. How do I make everybody happy except myself? Oh, dear yeah, God, I, what am I doing? I guess, like, losing my dad so young really, like, made me girl boss too close to the sun in that regard. Because if anything, I just read this as, like, passive woman needs to grow up a little bit. Um, and I'm not saying that, like, that to invalidate anyone who read this. And it's like, I feel this. I see myself in it. But, like, I'll fully admit, like, my own biases with that. Because as a Black woman, I have not been afforded the luxury to just sit around and not know what's going on. That's how we end up murdered. And not even in the fun way. So I mostly just see this as, like, a passive white woman. Murdered? Huh? There's a fun way to get murdered? So there's ritualistic ways, yes. Um, there are consensual packs that people can sign to be murdered there are consensual cannibalism packs that people can so sign I, it's very fun for the people who sign the paper i'm not into that yeah. same I, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist um but yeah it was it was an interesting read to kind of go through this because i can see how people would relate to this and then i was just like just go somewhere else but also her time period too and the fact that her position is so low she has nowhere to go mm -hmm. like that's a big part of it too like Valid. she's trying everything in her power to just step in these shoes that definitely don't fit because they belong to another woman mm -hmm. yeah it's like that one uh, TikTok I sent you of the two pigeons and it plays the other woman It's like that. So I like your your next note. Uh, so marriage, huh? That it sure doesn't look good often. <laughs> it just doesn't look good ever. Why do we do it? Why do, why do we keep doing it? Everyone's seen for a long time. And in this, too, it was often seen as the only way that a woman had protection. Yeah. I mean, I, <sighs> I historically understand. But I just... I just so, my last relationship, we were serious enough to think about marriage. Um, my last relationship also was with a trash... With, with a very, very trash narcissist. That Victoria does not like. 
he's in the dumpster. He's not allowed out of the dumpster. He's We're replacing the dumpster. the dumpster. Yeah. With him still in he's he's going away wherever dumpsters go. Yeah, he's he was not a great guy. But you know, and that was always something that during the time that we were together, that was always a concern for me was that it was easy to kind of get caught up in the idea of, oh, I'm going to have this lavish wedding with this person who says they love me and it's going to be great. But when all of the negative parts of his personality came out, it started making marriage feel like, honestly, like a Saw movie, like a trap that I just didn't feel comfortable getting into. Not for any lack of love, affection, or care, but because there was a lot that I was seeing that a, a married life does not support. Or at least in a healthy way. Um, but there's a, a long line of not great marriages in literature. Um, and I don't think therapy would benefit all of them. Though I am enamored with the idea of a bunch of bad marriages you know, for literary couples all signing up for like almost like a, a MILF manor style therapy retreat. <laughs> no. Yes. Please. No. Cause Please. I can just see Jane Eyre and our narrator talking going, Oh, he was great after the house burned down. Yeah. It, it feels like it would just end up being that gag from uh, wreck it Ralph where it's, all the Disney princesses, and it's like, it's like, were you enslaved or kidnapped? And it's just, are you guys I mean, okay? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's bad writing because Disney, you don't fix any of those problems by lampshading it. It's lazy and bad writing. I'm not here to bash Disney, not tonight. <laughs> that's not why I'm here. Not tonight. I like how that's the specification. Not tonight. Tomorrow, tomorrow, perhaps. I was gonna say uh, maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. See as how a you're feeling? Yeah, as a treat. Uh, and we return to uh, a treasure time honored theme, which is uh, sometimes you just gotta egg on Targaryen, the motherfucker. Burn it the fuck down. Burn it the fuck down. Or let a crazy woman burn it the fuck down. There's a lot of crazy women burning the burning shit the fuck down. Who keeps giving them matches? The cleansing fire. And it's meant to seem like it's this grand cleansing. We've we are getting rid of the evil. Only now can we be free of the oppressive legacy of the previous, you know, Mrs. DeWinter. And you need that, you know, rising of smoke and ash to charter a new path. Uh, I'd say that there's some Phoenix imagery, but I don't think that any of this shit should have risen on. I think more people should have been in that house as it burned. I love the fact that Maxim de Winter makes a joke at the beginning of the book about Ethelred the Unready. Mm hmm. Being in the house and how he mm -hmm. developed the nickname because he didn't come downstairs in time for dinner. And Mrs. Van Hopper believing it. Mm -hmm. 
and everybody in the room just being incredibly uncomfortable because mm-hmm. he's joking around about this history that could not have happened or and did not happen. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, wow, how uh, how weird is it having oh, that nice. much, uh, history to fall back on and make jokes about? Yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not nice. It's not nice. But yeah, there's a cleansing fire. Uh, <laughs> the sad white people book. The sad white people book. That's I mean, what that's it is. We read. Huh? That's a lot of the books we read. I know, and I don't relate to them because it's just like, look at these white people having problems. It's like the sketch on Mad TV, pretty white kids with problems. Right, like I literally, so one of my friends has um, a leopard gecko. And like, I love him because he's, you know, dumb as a brick, but very, very cute. And yeah, like whenever we read books like this, I do just feel like I'm watching a leopard gecko. It's like, look, look at them. Look at those white people having problems. Why are they doing this? I knocked up off the wall. Yeah, I'm fine. Do Do you want to talk about the author a little bit? I do. So, Daphne du Maurier, or Moguet, if you're being very French. So, just a little backstory. Her family had this whole thing where they're like, oh, we were French and we came over, you know, during the revolution as rich people to escape and, you know, became part of English life, which was all bullshit. Um, But it became like this big family story that everybody always told. Um, Anyhow, she was born on May 13th in 1907. She was a Taurus. Um, Her parents were an actor manager named Sir Gerard and his wife, the actress Muriel Beaumont or Beaumont. Her grandfather was a little bit more famous. His name was George Dumarier and he was a writer and cartoonist. He -hmm. created the character Svengali. So she was the middle child of three daughters. And all of the girls were, you know, pretty out there and very interesting. Um, her cousins were the Llewellyn Davies boys, which were the same boys that inspired J.M. Barry's Peter Pan, um, like cool. the Lost Boys. Um, she met a lot of actors as a kid because of her mm-hmm. dad. She ended up meeting Tallulah Bankhead. So the anecdote was that she's quoted as saying Bankhead was the most beautiful creature she'd ever seen, which is fascinating because Tallulah Bankhead was gay as fuck anyway so as a child Daphne and her sisters took on these masculine personas Um, they -hmm. would act as warriors and stuff like that when they were playing and she called herself Eric Avon and as she got older she started to refer to that personality as the boy in the box and so when she wanted to be more powerful or she wanted to be the seducer she would take on the persona of Eric. When she was trying to be extremely feminine, she would just kind of fall into this other role. And How does, today that wait. would be very different than what it is then. <laughs> yeah, why, wait, why is she me? That's literally what I did. And I have a whole other gender because, wait, what? what? So she <laughs> spent a lot of her life in Cornwall where her a bunch of her books are set. She ended up marrying a man named who was Major Frederick Boy Browning, Boy being his nickname. Um, oh. When they got together, eventually he was Lieutenant General. They had three kids. He ended up working for the royal family after the wars. Um, mm-hmm. So he spent most of his time in London. 
And she was like, hey, I like where I live in Cornwall. And so he would come down sometimes on the weekends. Um, it's pretty well known that he had affairs, especially because when his health started to fail, one of the women he was having an affair with called her and blamed her for his illness. It's very that's not how that, yeah, that's not how that works, though. Yeah. Uh, he worked for Prince Philip and the royal family. If that tells you mm. anything. Yeah. Um, her marriage was rumored to be very chilly, and everybody said she was very distant to her children and kind of left them to be raised by the staff because she was busy writing. Okay. There is some truth to that, but not all of it is truth. And even her kids have been like, she was mom. She just wrote. Like, she was still her mom, and she still hung out. Um, her husband died in 1965, so she mm -hmm. has a, quite a bit of time without him. Yeah. Um, she was named Dame Daphne de Maurier because he had been promoted in his rank, and so she was as well. Um, she was known as Lady Browning going forward, but she never used her title. She hated it and thought it was stupid. Um, she didn't mm -hmm. even tell her kids that this was happening, that she was her title was going up to be Dame of the Empire. Um, her kids found out from the paper. Um, she was like, I'm only accepting it because investiture is going to help the kids. Like, very okay. big about that. Okay. Um, she was not into granting interviews. She really liked her privacy. But then okay. a film came out called The Bridge Too Far, which was really mm -hmm. unflattering about her husband's war record and a decision he made that got a lot of people killed. So she ended up writing to these national papers to complain about the film's treatment of her husband. Okay. Um, People who knew her really, really well said she was very warm and welcoming. She was just very selective of who she was friends with. Like, she mm -hmm. was not very gregarious. Um, her books have never gone out of print. Like, this book, at least. Um, there mm -hmm. have been some others that are smaller. Um, and between 1938 and 1965, this book sold over 2.8 million copies, which was crazy for the time period. <laughs> now, she also has a few other very famous works including um jamaica inn which became another hitchcock film and the hitchcock film that is most well known that she's responsible for is the birds um yes however they changed the hell out of the story um so it ended up being a big deal um they're okay so we're gonna talk real quick about the scandals having to do with a bunch of people accusing her of stealing their work after she became incredibly popular. So oh, there's some people haters. have compared her book to Jane Eyre. Um, uh, yeah. Which she thought out said, Hey, I know there's Moors and shit, but uh, <laughs> these are my memories of Cornwall. Okay. Um, she based a lot of the relationship with Maxim on her relationship with her father, which is incredibly worrisome. Um, a smidge. A smidge. Um, there were accusations that Rebecca was a lot like a book from a Brazilian writer named Carolina Nabucco. It was called, I can't even do it, A Successora, which was published in 1934. But here's the whole thing. A bunch of people read it and said, it's not even close to close enough to even be a ripoff. Yeah. Um, at one point in time, she had to come to New York because there was a short story that ended up becoming a novel. It's like something about through a window. And this woman's son inherited the rights after she passed away mm -hmm. so she had never said anything about 
Rebecca being close to any of her work, but he got the rights and immediately tried to sue uh, Doubleday to get uh -huh. the to get money. He's like, oh, well, your writer totally ripped off my mom's story. They proved it in court. It wasn't true. Um, huh. Especially because there were a lot of notes and stuff that were very much about an estate that she discovered when she was a child. So there was a place yeah. called Amenability, and it was an estate that she was obsessed with as a kid. So that whole thing with the postcard, pretty interesting. That's that's You can see her kind of putting herself in the book. Um, mm -hmm. When she finally had money from her books and she was making enough, she negotiated a leasing situation with the family that owned it, and she rented mm -hmm. it from them. Um, now, mm -hmm. this house was really badly in disrepair. Like, really bad to the point where she goes if unless i get all my staff and everybody here and hired before winter we're not going to have a house so mm -hmm. she ended up spending a ton of money and time getting it ready with a bunch of um, people that she hired however even though they made it for winter entire portions of the house were unlivable due to neglect of the actual owners so, and the house also had no central heating so middle of the winter in Britain near the yeah, that's coast. Not going over very well. Yeah. Um, this home ended up becoming the basis for Manderley. So reviewers love the book. But yeah, I can see. A lot of them missed out on what she was trying to portray. And she was upset about that. She wanted to show the power dynamics between someone who has a lot of it and someone who has none of it. Mm -hmm. um, or very little of it. Um, as she got more popular, she became more reclusive. She really just didn't want to hang out with people. Maybe. She was like, I just want to write and do what I, I do. Mm -hmm. um, she died in 1989, and some writers came forward afterward about alleged lesbian relationships. Now, a lot of this is convenient. Um, yeah. And seems like it could be accurate. But we don't really have proof. So that's what I want to throw out. Um, the yeah. very first was Ellen Doubleday, the wife of her U.S. publisher. Mm -hmm. And during this whole trial, she had to come over to defend herself. So mm -hmm. Ellen Doubleday offered to go pick her up on this very nice ship and bring her and her children over. And according to people who knew Daphne, she was very into Ellen. She thought she was absolutely beautiful and she freaked out and tried to hide for half of the, the cruise back to the U.S. Mm -hmm. But they became very close friends. Um, there is a belief that they may have fallen in love with each other. Mm -hmm. um, but again, we don't really have proof. There's a lot of like biographers going, I hope, I hope, I hope. Um, this ended up becoming something that was a little bit weirder down the line as well. Gertrude Lawrence was a, an actress who had actually had an affair with her father, with Daphne's father. Oh. And <laughs> so Daphne wrote a play, which a lot of people believe is based on Ellen Doubleday, who's about this woman who falls in love with her son-in-law. Uh -huh. And with the whole male perspective that Damari liked to put on the Eric Avon thing, they feel like that was her trying to get over Ellen. Mm -hmm. So when this play is cast, Gertrude Lawrence is cast, or Gertie. Mm -hmm. And at first, Daphne's furious. She's like, this is the dumbest thing ever. I can't believe you're casting one of my dad's cast-offs. This is ridiculous. 
And then it's believed that she may have transferred that crush on Ellen onto Gertrude. So wow. when Gertrude ended up passing away of cancer, very surprisingly, Damari had basically a full-on breakdown at her house. Um, mm -hmm. And her family was like, why are you upset about some actress you like never hung out with? Mm -hmm. So that was a big thing. Um, some biographers think that she was bisexual, um, but that because of her, she, at the time it was not acceptable for her to embrace that. She refused to accept it. And she kept that boy in a box a, a lot. Um, there could be so many different things that unfortunately we can't, you know, as historians and readers, mm -hmm. we don't know because we can't ask her. And it wasn't at a, a point right. in time where she could leave those kind of clues. Right. Um, and it's always a little bit tricky to start ascribing those things, especially as people, you know, are no longer with us. I know there is kind of this almost like feminist desire sometimes that everyone was queer and everyone, you know, was this and that. And while metatextually, I understand that desire. I also think that ascribing too many things to actual people is a little detrimental it's detrimental and it's dangerous um yes that's now there were definitely trans people there are definitely queer people for sure by for no sure. means that's, am i saying erasure that's nothing new um mm. bisexuality is valid and it's been around a long time but unless you have that person openly identifying it makes it really difficult right yeah, I've seen that a lot with um, especially like a lot of the part the perp, pop archaeology that you see on TikTok, where it's like, oh, and this brave trans male warrior, and it's like, okay, we don't know what happened. This is a pile of bones. This this is a pile of bones in the dirt. The hill we I will die on, though. Yes, Achilles and Patroclus were gay. Oh well, well but we have historical context there's textual evidence like we so like that one isn't just fanfic like we have historical documentation to support that but when it's just like oh this is a skull in a box non-binary icon <laughs> it's like okay i mean so, I, unless you're like the universal friend which yes is a confirmed Confirmed icon. So her dad stuff is really uncomfortable. Um, yeah, most dad stuff ev is. Evidently, he was pretty open about the fact that he wanted a boy and he mm. kind of wished Daphne had been a boy. Mm. Um, in a book of collected works of Daphne by um, an editor named Helen Taylor, she says that Demaria confessed to her in 1965 that her dad had been had crossed the line um, and had kind of an incestuous type relationship, not sexually, but emotionally. Like he was very overbearing. And when his daughters started dating men, he got really weird about it. And he was also pretty violent and an alcoholic. Um, yeah, I, don't, I don't like, I don't like that. Don't like that. Don't like that. Like, yeah. So, I, don't, I don't like that. Yeah. So she, she was very quiet and very careful about what she rele or released to her family and friends when she was alive. But mm -hmm. um, Helen Taylor waited to say anything about it until after Daphne had died. So okay. um, 
she ended up dying of heart failure in her sleep in April, on April 19th, 1989. She was 81 mm -hmm. and she was cremated and had her um, ashes scattered on the hills of Kilmarth and in Menabillion, Cornwall. Now, mm -hmm. she specifically requested that she'd be cremated in private and that there was be no memorial service. Okay. So taking that privacy to the grave, man. Yeah, I mean... Good, good for her. Good for her. <laughs> Tori, I'm so tired. <laughs> we'll wrap this up, man. I'm so um, tired. So there have been a uh, lot of adaptations, especially for radio and TV. Yes. Um, because it lends itself more to a miniseries than it really does a movie. But yeah, I, I feel like a as a movie, as a movie was kind of a disaster. Yeah, the Hitchcock one in 1940. So here's something. Daphne had very flat out said that she really didn't like any of the adaptations of her stuff on screen, mostly because mm -hmm. it always had to be changed. Um, mm -hmm. Jamaica Inn evidently was a complete disaster. They changed the ending of Rebecca so that Maxim wouldn't look like a complete shitlord. Um, mm -hmm. And then the birds, they just completely changed the location. They changed all sorts of stuff. So then she got a bunch of flack of people going, she, they stole, she stole my work. And it's like, no, I was watching birds be weird with a bunch of animals in a field. And I thought, what would happen if birds went crazy? Regular thoughts that I have. There you go. What would happen if bird go insane? What happened? bird go crazy so there's actually um we used or a few resources there's a really good podcast of stuff you missed in history class that's just about daphne de moyer yes um, it's really good um they're very detailed they're more even de detailed than us there is a documentary about her that i'm including for youtube or from mm -hmm. youtube um mm -hmm. and then just there's a really cool video of like when she allowed the public or not the public, but she allowed um, a group to come in and do video of her house. And what's mm -hmm. interesting is all of it is staged so that she's playing with her children at the time. But the kids said after that, um, that they went back up with their nannies. Oh, they weren't mad. Oh. They were like, this is boring. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess as long as they're not mad, but oh. <laughs> I don't, that's that's a little sad to me. And it's like, oh well, we got the shot. Pack it in. Did you have to read uh, this in school? Uh no. No, <laughs> no, I did not. So I've read this before and enjoyed it, but also keep in mind I did take a class in which we read like Villette and all sorts of stuff like that. So mm. you get this kind of Wow, women in marriage—that's that's a trap kind of books, mm -hmm. or in a relationship. Yeah, I mean, zero judgment. Like, I definitely see this on the end of like, I can see why people would like this. I'm not like a full on hater. It's not like Jane Eyre where it's like I don't know why we read this and people are wrong. Like, I can see the appeal. I think just especially because I don't have any nostalgia for it. It's just several pages of white white people having problems. I love Speaking it. Of, fair. Speaking <laughs> of episode 100. Episode 100 is next. Do you want to tell the good people what we're reading? Uh, we're reading Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. 
celebrate our 100th and episode by talking about racism. Just so much racism. <laughs> it's just so much racism. Uh, but I feel like this one's been a long time coming. We haven't done it. I know. I'm kind of impressed we haven't done it. I think there was a reason we haven't done it. Because <laughs> I feel We're like it crops it. up. It crops up every once in a while. Like, yeah, potato, potato. We'll do it Smack later. Smack it down. Move right. on. And then Tori will bring up this esoteric book that her and that only her and three of her friends have ever heard of. <laughs> Listen, so, I was an English major. I don't know what to tell you. I was also an English major. Is it the communications part that means that I don't have a list of grimoires of terrible people making bad choices and thick ass books? I mean, that's just gothic literature. Like was it was was it the double major that kept me from that? <laughs> but uh, we're reading Huckleberry Finn to celebrate 100 episodes. Uh, we're also going to do something. I feel like we need to celebrate. I told Tori I want to go on a day cruise. I freaked out at first because you said you wanted to go on a cruise, and I was like. Well, no, I, no, I specifically said I want to go on a day cruise. No, no, no. I specifically said a day cruise. Because I'm thinking one of those little ones that you, you know, go to Galveston. They take you around the boat a little bit. You look at some dolphins. You go home. I'm not thinking of a carnival cruise to Mexico for five minutes. <laughs> so we're going to do something. I don't know what yet. But I feel like we should celebrate 100 uh, pretty strongly as we've been doing this for quite some time. So we are all over social media. We are. We're on unfortunately required reading on Facebook. Yes. Or unfortunately are on Twitter. Yes. Unfortunately required on Instagram. Correct. And then unfortunately required reading.com. Yes. We also have uh, an email address that I haven't checked in a while. Unfortunately required reading at gmail.com. Twitter is regularly checked. Uh, I got better. <laughs> Listen, we doom scroll. I don't know what to tell you. Um, if you would, this is the part of the show where we thank our supporters, including Baron von Cheeseplate. Uh, we have not forgotten about your last question. Tori won't give me feedback. Listen, <laughs> I'm weird about gifts, bro. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> um. So, if you would like to join those uh, esteemed individuals that have decided to give us money so that we may make bad decisions, you may do so at spotifyforpodcasters.com slash unfortunately required slash support. Yes, the URL is longer. No, we had nothing to do with that. Exactly. Anchor was always owned by Spotify, and now they just rebranded. And in that rebranding, it is less user-friendly and more of a pain in the ass. Yup. We have to Which record is, new ads. Otherwise, we don't get paid. What's really weird, too, is that it looks like once you log in, it looks exactly the same. It's the same. It's the fucking same. But because, they changed, the but because they changed the name, we have to record new ads because otherwise we don't get paid. We have to reestablish our payment portal through Spotify rather than through Stripe. So that might be easier for us. But it's a whole kerfluffle. 
We don't need to get that deep into the sausage. It's eight o'clock at night. <laughs> We're tired. We're very tired. Uh, listen, there's a whole lot going on just about everywhere. I feel like I say that every episode and every episode, it means something else. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say, despite the call to action earlier, I'm also going to encourage you that one of the best things that you can do is to be radically free, to love yourself, to care, to rest, to reorganize, to grieve, to celebrate. That is the best thing we can do in the face of what is utterly fascism and the prospects of cultural and ethnic, and in this very, very strange case, sexual genocide. There's a lot going on. How do we get a Mrs. Danvers into the uh, governor's mansion? Um, she wouldn't have a problem with any of those crazy old white men. Oh, that's right. That's the problem. She wouldn't have an issue with any of those crazy old white men. Um, but, you know, still call your representatives and leaders. But also, you know, I, I remember messaging Tori about this. So, you know, I was doing such a good job tidying up and cleaning. And I was eating well. And then this week just hit me like a bus. And it's like, oh, I'm sad. <laughs> I'm sad and overwhelmed because the world's on fire. So take some time to yourself. Enjoy something that you like. Feel the feelings that you have. Even if those feelings are nothing, compassion fatigue is very real. We rise when it's convenient to all of us. <laughs> uh, thank you, dear listeners, for being with us for 99 episodes. We look forward to seeing you again in episode 100. Go read a book. Bye. Bye.